This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. All right, welcome back to Scissors and Scrubs. We had deep in snow. Laura. Oh, deep in snow. Frozen tundra over here. It's cold. <laughs> And uh, staying with our winter theme, we're taking some expeditions. Yes. We're going to go high into the Andes mm-hmm. and high into the Himalayas. We're going to yeah. go to the top of the world today mm-hmm. and the tragedies there within, because yeah. you know how we love our tragedies. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't go there if there was. Um, I was just telling Laura on Netflix, there is, I've watched two different specials. Mm-hmm. One was called 14 Peaks. Have you watched that one? No, I saw that. I have to watch that. So 14 Peaks. This um, Nepalese, Nepal, I don't know what they're called, sure. but a guy from Nepal. This guy's a fucking badass. He's mm-hmm. in the, what do they call them? There's a certain part of their army, and I've heard this, fr- um, the phrase of what they are in different songs. They're badasses. Mm-hmm. So he, he's done all kinds of stuff, and he decides he wants to bring, like, um, pride to the Nepal people because the Sherpas get no credit no. for the things they do. Mm-hmm. And they, they're really, they're, they're a people. They're mm-hmm. not just like a guy. They're, right. pe- they're, they're a people called Sherpas. Right. So he decides there are 14 peaks in the world above 8,000 meters, mm-hmm. which is 20,000 feet. It's mm-hmm. like cruising altitude of planes. Right. Few people have done it. The first guy, I think, to do it is this uh, Italian hiker. I mean, he's he's a badass. He, you should see him. It's just nothing but hair. <laughs> and uh, he did it in the 70s. And he did it in seven years. It took him seven years to climb these 14 mm-hmm. peaks. This kid decides, or this man decides, he's going to do it in a year. And he he's actually going to do that in a year. In a year. Okay. And he actually achieves it in seven months. Holy shit. He climbs Everest and the other two peaks next to it. In a weekend. Oh, just a little weekend getaway. In a fucking weekend he yeah, did it. Yeah. I was like, Brian, he did that. In f- he climbed Everest and the other two in 48 hours. Like Everest went back down to the other peak, then went down mm-hmm. and then did the mm-hmm. other. Not like across the top. No. Oh, you couldn't. No. You couldn't do it. There's no fucking way. But I mean like he didn't stay like up. Like trying to jump from the Empire State Building to the Sea of Stars. No, but I mean like, like he didn't stay up to- and they kind of. Oh, no. He goes to the bottom and because it wouldn't count. If you right, like you have the to do it from the He has to start from the bottom. Holy God. I mean, the the scenery is unbelievable. And to be honest with you, when he climbs and he takes you on every peak with him, Everest is the easiest. My God. When he takes you up K2 or he takes you to the, there's another one, Anatom Mastiff. It's like the number one deadliest mountain in the world. Mm-hmm. He literally, like, he saves, like, four people during this thing. People who just come across that couldn't hike anymore and they were dying. And I yeah. want to get into some of the things. Unbelievable show. Okay. So you got to watch it. I'll watch it tonight. And the other one is The Alpinist. This will all prepare you for what we're talking about tonight. So The Alpinist is a young man. Yeah. Mark Andrew LeClaire. Andrew Mark LeClaire. Mark Andrew? I think it's Mark Andrew. He's this young 20-something-year-old guy. And he climbs freestyle. No ropes, no nothing. It literally makes me nauseous. These enormous mountain faces. Just like, it's, it, I was sweating yeah. watching this kid. He goes to Patagonia and he climbs the Torrey Egger, 
which is the spire. And he doesn't, most climbers climb it in the summertime. Oh, he goes in the wintertime. Oh, of course. And he's going to climb it in the middle of a fucking snowstorm. Of course. So these shows, they're, they're hard to watch because mm. they're stressful. Mm-hmm. But holy shit, these two people, wow. All yeah. I could say is wow. And I just sit back and think, there's not, I can, I can watch it on Netflix all day long. I have no desire. I climbed Tuckerman's Ravine. That was enough. Yeah. Do you know Mount Washington is either just above Everest is the most dangerous or just below? It is I was telling that to somebody 10. recently. No, it's true. That, like, lives in New Hampshire. I'm like, I think Mount Washington is, like, one of the most dangerous mountains yep. in the world. And they're like, what are you talking? It's so long. I'm like, I'm telling you. I'm it's pretty no, sure. It's in the top ten. Yeah. And I'm going to go as far as to say it's in the top six. I, it, I'm like, I know it is. And they're like, no, there's no way. It's not even high. I'm like, I'm telling you, I know. The I highest know. winds in the yeah. world have been recorded at the I'm top of Mount Washington. Washington. So people go up there thinking it's nothing. This is mm-hmm. a stupid little mountain. This mm-hmm. is stupid. It's not that high. It's stupid, stupid, stupid. Yeah. The weather's what's going to get you yeah. up there. People don't expect it. The snowstorms that Well, you in. go in Tuckerman's Ravine in the summer. It's a bowl of Ice. snow. People yeah. are skiing. Yeah. In the summer. Yep. Yeah. In New Hampshire. And if you, so we climbed up the backside and we climbed up to the base of Tuckerman's. Uh-huh. And there's a little, um, and the only reason we stopped was because it was pouring rain button when we got up there. There was a cabin. And it was like a ranger's cabin. Mm-hmm. And on the ranger's cabin was a list of all the people who have died on Mount Washington. Yeah. Flooding, avalanches, exposure. There's exposure. a lot of avalanches in that bowl. Yes. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So, that being well, said. Well, then I guess I'm I'm pretty good if I hiked yeah. Tuckerman's Ravine. I, I, I hiked to the base. child at the time. I hiked to base in yeah. July. I was preteen. Oh, look at you go. I took, well, I'm I took an advanced my, mountain. So I take my kids up. God bless. In this particular path, this is the path the skiers will use, but it's all rocks. Mm-hmm. It's very rocky. Oh, yeah. It's all rocks. Right. So we're going to do it. And it's like, oh, it won't rain until two or three in the afternoon. So we left at like nine in the morning, right? We get to the top of the, um, to the bottom of Tux and it's 11 o'clock. Oh my God. Here comes the rain. Like, deluge downpour pouring on us. Like, fuck. And I got three kids, mm-hmm. young kids. So I was like, okay. And my oldest must have been, he's 17 now, 13, 14 maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, my daughter was freezing because she's in a tank top. Mm-hmm. You know, we did the stupid thing, yeah. thinking it will be up and down in no time. So I looked at them and I was like, and I, you know, I probably shouldn't talk to my kids this way, but I did. Yeah. I was like, listen, the hike down is going to suck. Mm-hmm. It's going to suck bad. And I know it. I don't want to hear the whole way down this how bad it sucks. <laughs> Because I know it's going to suck. Right. And my oldest, I make fun of him and everything. But when it's against the wall, he steps up every time. So my daughter's cold. He gives her his shirt. Mm-hmm. On the way up, we had found somebody hung like a uh, fleece on, on a tree. Mm-hmm. On the way down, we pass it again. He's like, now he's got no shirt on. He's cold. He's like, what do you think, mom? I said, God put that there for a reason. <laughs> I don't care what it smells like. I don't care if it's covered in lice. If you're freezing, putting on, we'll deal with it at the bottom. And he takes some random jacket, sticks it on. By the end of the trail, on the way down, we were laughing. Because I just was doing anything to distract them. We're talking stories. uh, Let's play the picnic game. Anything to distract them from the misery Mm -hmm. of climbing these wet rocks Mm -hmm. in the rain two hours down. Yeah. But we survived. Good job. We survived. Okay. So I survived that, but Mm -hmm. I don't think... I would survive either one of our stories no, today. I don't think so. so Laura's gonna take it away, Sparkles. Curl up and die somewhere. Yeah, I yeah. would I would be miserable. I would be the one they they use for dinner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All so. right. So I'm talking about the Andes. Uh oh. They're in South America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I'm huge, assuming big, they're huge cold. mountain range. Yeah, and you wouldn't because, you know, it's between Uruguay and Argentina and Chile, which all warm. Well, Argentina is where Patagonia is yeah. on the tip well, of the because, earth, and it's freezing. Because they're so high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, on October 12th, 1972, the I old... I wasn't even born yet, that. Oh I can never, I never say that anymore. <laughs> I never get to say that anymore. Um, the old Christians Club, which was a Uruguayan amateur rugby team, chartered a flight from... Montevideo, Uruguay, to Santiago, Chile, to attend a, ma- a rugby match. Um, the white, remember that, twin-engined Fairchild turboprop plane had five crew members and 40 passengers, which consisted of the club members um, and their family and friends because they had more people go on to lower the cost of the flight. So it's a decent-sized plane if there's 40 people There's 45 on people on it, yeah. Um, because it was bad weather in the mountains, they had to stay overnight um, in Mendoza, Argentina. They departed again on October 13th, around 2.18 p.m. The plane could not fly higher, like the plane was not engineered to fly higher than 22,500 feet. So they couldn't fly directly to their destination because the Andes are there. Yeah, because you can't get over them. Right. You would have to go higher than that to get over these mountains. So... Instead, they had to plot a course south to the Pass of Planchon, which I'm sure I'm yeah. saying wrong, which is, you which know, I know in exactly the Andes. where that is, Laura. Yep. Where the plane could safely clear the Andes, because, you know, there's like a mm-hmm. big dip there, so they could go through that. Around 3.15 p.m., the pilot radios, the yeah, traffic controllers, that he was flying over the pass, and shortly after, radioed um, that he had reached Curaco, Chile, 110 miles south of Santiago, and was turning north to go to Santiago. So he the, makes it through the pass. Okay. The controllers clear him. <laughs> I'm like, not going to yep, ask any questions you can, until you're done. You can start descending to land because you're now cleared of all that. You're going to go to Santiago and land at your destination. Problem was, the pli- pilot was wrong oh. about their location. He had no idea where they were. He was he was confused as to where they were. They were not clear of the Andes. How was he confused? Does it get into it? No, nope. I, I don't know if I'm it's sorry. the weather or he couldn't see them. You know, just by he's probably going by the gauges and misreading oh, them. You don't or something. want to be confused out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had complete wrong location. The plane is still in the Andes. They are not Shit. clear of the Andes. Shortly after they cleared the plane for landing, air traffic control loses contact with the plane. So they think these people are out here in Chile somewhere, right. out of the Andes. Right, they're not. At about three thirty p.m. on October thirteenth. The plane hit the Andes with the right wing, which snapped off. (gasps) That wing then hit and severed the tail of the plane off. Oh, now they got no help Mm -hmm. at all. They're done. Then the left wing hits, you know, a part of the mountains. So now it's just a fuselage. That snaps off. The fuselage crashes in a remote valley of Argentina near the Chilean Valley. Seven people were sucked out of the plane right away. You know, like when the tail comes off, seven people are sucked out. Um... And five people died on impact. That left 40. That's not a lot. That left 33 survivors. Holy moly. A lot of which were injured, obviously. Um, And that left them to survive at an altitude of 11,500 feet in snow, freezing temps. And what's on board a plane to eat? Nothing. You get some candy and little bottles of wine. You get the Biscoffs. That's all they had. A couple things of candy and a couple things of wine. And... They're in a broken fuselage for protection. Yep. It's broken up. The wings yeah. are broken up. The tail's broken. There's all this open space. Space. 
So these people, God bless them, are smart. Because I would have curled up and died. Um, I would have had the bottle of wine. I know. And I would have gotten hypothermia and buried myself in the snow. Go and I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> um, they ripped aluminum from the seats to put snow in, to melt snow, to get a constant stream of water. That makes sense. So that was good on them. I mean, I like, that's oh, the one thing die. is they have water. Yes, they had water. But you can't drink just the snow because then you're freezing already. So no, then it just drops your yeah. body temp. Um, but they, you can survive for a very long time without food. Yes. Um, they rearranged materials in the fuselage to provide protection from the elements. So they like any chairs that were loose, they put them up against the holes in the fuselage to try to give them yeah. some protection from the elements. Um, one survivor talks about having one chocolate covered peanut left. One. One day. There were clearly no Italians on this plane because I go on a plane, I pack a fucking Italian sub for each kid. I know. I got chips. I got It was cokes. just like, it was supposed to be like a short hop. They yeah, well, still, you know, I get hungry. You know how I am, Laura. I know. I always have food. I know. Fishies, crackers. Yeah, they didn't have that. So, Vitas. On, one, on day one of just the one chocolate covered peanut left, he puts it in his mouth and he all day just sucks the chocolate off the peanut. Not that's, eating it. That's discipline. Yep. Day two. He leaves the peanut in his mouth, like sucks on the peanut on his mouth for hours. Just How is there any peanut left? Like a little teeny bit and it would only allow himself like a little teeny tiny nibble oh a couple God, times a day. That's discipline. Third day. Stay again, peanut. puts the peanut back in his mouth. Eventually on the third day, it disintegrates. Now there is nothing left. There is no food yeah. left. So um, we we're on day three. Yeah. So, well, I think right. the food lasted for about a week. He had this, you know, whenever. Yeah. But the, after a week, all the food's gone. Because it was like nothing on it. It was snacks. The plane was searched for for eight days. However, the last known, quote unquote, area of the plane was wrong. Right. They, so they're looking at the wrong not, area. Right. Um, they were in a white plane in the Andes in and the snow. snow. You can't see shit. You no. can't see it. You're no. going with the snow. Um, and also... The very harsh environment led to people to believe there's no survivors. Mm -hmm. They crashed. They're in the mountains somewhere. No right. one lived. So after eight days, they stopped the search. Oh, man. Um. So the little food rations, like I said, were gone after a week. The survivors had very lengthy discussions and finally decided to be able to survive in these conditions and to wait for someone to come get us. They needed to eat the corpses of the dead passengers do to stay do. alive there's no source of food right. i mean there's literally no source of food some didn't want to partake in this some were like no i can't do that you can do that i can't do right. that but they find a transistor radio and hear on the radio that the searches were called off so now they know so they can't there's use, no they, one yeah, coming they like can't they, these people were ho hoping to hold wait, out until yeah. someone came and got them like i'm not going to do that i can wait and then they hear they're done searching and they're like well no now we have to like there is no Right. There is no help coming, so we have to do something. So they all decide to eat the What's left dead bodies. Which so, have been sitting in the snow for a week. Now. But they're frozen. Yeah, that's true. So they use shards of glass like that has broken off in the plane to just remove little slivers of meat from the buttocks. Because it's muscular. Um it depends on, on who it is. <laughs> well they're <laughs> rugby players. You're getting but pork rinds off of my ass. <laughs> rugby players. Those <laughs> that's true. Guys got the buttocks. Well there's family members, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, on day 18, there was an day avalanche. Day 18. Mm -hmm. They're out there. There's nothing. They're out there. But nobody's leaving to go and get help either. Not yet. Okay. So on day 18, there's an avalanche, which buried the fuselage and kills another eight people. <gasps> oh. So this just, 
gets the whole group, we have to do something. Right. Like, we cannot we just sit here. here. We are all going to die. Um, so it strengthens their resol- resolve to get out there and get help. I'm sorry, and- what month, month is this? October. Oh, so this is the it's, beginning of the winter. Yeah. This isn't even the end. Um, um, so they're all weak. I mean, they're not. Right. It's been two weeks in the Andes. Right. Three weeks. Um, almost three weeks. Three weeks. Um, they're all weak. None of them are mountaineers. They're rugby players. They have no fucking idea how to survive in the right. mountains. Um, they have nothing with them to survive in the mountains. But they're smart. They gathered equipment. They made a sled out of like shit from the plane. They sewed material together to make a sleeping bag. Um, and they selected three people to set out to Probably try to find the healthiest. Yeah, whoever's the strongest that can make it. Um, they tried for a long time to send these people out, like after they made this stuff, but like weather would happen or right. this would happen and they couldn't go. So on December 12th, they crashed Holy October 13th. Shit. With 16 survivors left. That's over a month. It's like two months. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. 16 survivors were left. Three men set out to go find help. 16 of the 30-something are left? Of 45 people. There was 45 people on that plane. Right, but 16 then 33 were still alive after Yes, the and crash. now it's 16. Wow. Yeah. Um. So three of them set out. One comes back very shortly after. Because I, when they were walking, they realized, we're going to run out of our resources that we have. Like, whatever. They, they must have got some meat with them. Yeah. They, you know, the sleeping bag, the sled. They were like, whatever we have, it's going to be too many. One, one has to go back. Two will keep on. So ha- somehow between the weak, their weakness, the freezing cold, the severe altitude sickness, because they're up yeah. on the top of a mountain, um, they ascended 15,000, a 15,000-foot 15, peak. These people who have been out in the fucking cold for two for months, two months climb a 15,000 peak, 15,000 foot peak. It's the one that was nearest the crash site. They get to the top. They're at the peak. They survey the land. Like, what you are we looking at? Is there anything happening? They decide to go down the opposite side of the mountain than the plane was on. Um, Then they make their way. There's like a glacier below. They have to like get around yeah. the glacier below them. With no crampons. Nothing. No ice they have yeah. nothing. On December 18th, they hear running water. So they're shitting themselves. They're at the mouth of a river. So they start following the river. Because the river. somebody's on it. Right. They're like, somebody's got to be on a river. On December 19th, they see signs of civilization. They see a horseshoe, a cow dung, a soup can. Can you imagine how awesome they must have been? I know. And on December 20th, across the river, they see a man on a horse. Of course, this is not going to be easy. The river's so loud, the man across the river can't hear them. He sees them. He can't hear them. He leaves. The next day, that man comes back with another guy. The survivors try to, like, mime, like, plane crash, mountain. Like, they're trying to tell them that one of the guys, like, I, but then I'm like, we look like lunatics. They're not going to come over here because we're, like, acting crazy. Um, So one of the guys, I'm going to call them rescuers, on the other side of the river is like, okay, fuck this. I don't know what they're saying. Gets a rock, puts a note around it, and literally whips it across the across river. the river. I don't know what they have to write with. Right, blood. I don't know what they're writing with. Maybe there was something with the right. paper. The survivors. <coughs> so the survivors get the rock. It pretty much says, "What the hell happened?" And the they write back, "Our plane crashed. There's more people up the mountain. We need help." Later that morning, a man appears on their side of the river, and all of a sudden, they're in a camp in a heated tent. Getting oh hot my food. God. Could you imagine I how know. that must have felt? The um, Chilean police show up. Reporters show up. 
because these guys probably told like whoever they live near. Um, rescue helicopters arrive. The police still kind of don't believe this story because it's like, there's no fucking way. You've you been out survived. here for two months. You survived a plane crash. You summited a mountain. You came <laughs> down the other side of the glacier. You found these people. There's no fucking way this happened. Um, but they do go and search for the fuselage. Um, the survivors go with them to try to mm-hmm. help them find it. The, the, like the weather mm-hmm. is like awful. The sh- helicopter shuddering. The guy lost his bearings because they had to go like a different way. So he's like, I don't even know where to look anymore. All of a sudden they see a couple black dots in the snow. And they're like, that's it. There it is. There it is. They get down there. They evacuate six survivors. But because of the bad weather, they have to leave and leave the other eight there. <gasps> Oh yeah. my God. Can you imagine being no. those eight? I mean, no. like, climb me on, yeah. just get me on. Like I, I'd be hanging on to the little yeah. runner on the I'll bottom. I'll just go. I swear I'll to God. Make it. <laughs> so the next morning they go back, get the other eight. They're all taken off the mountain. They survived seventy-two days in the no. Andes. No, I wouldn't. No I would have been the one they were eating. Yeah, nope. Seventy-two days. Um, however, like these, I, mean, I don't have that kind of will. No, that's miraculous. Like right. you have to have the willpower to stay alive is unreal. The media catches wind of the whole story, though. And it gets viral. These guys. It was cannibalism. Right. Which is very taboo. Yeah. You don't do cam- cannibalism. The survivors are shunned. They're, like, looked down on. It's oh. terrible. You are, you're awful people. You went against God. Like, What are you supposed shunned. to do? Yeah. However, the survivors start talking about the conditions, like, what happened. One of them um, kind of likened it to... The Last Supper, like Jesus said, eat bread right. and wine, it, but it's my body and blood. Right. Like, that's what we did to stay alive. Like, to... Right. People, that story helped normalize what they did. I would never shun anybody for that. No. It kind of helped sway public opinion. Like, okay, these guys did what they had to do. They would have mm-hmm. all died. Blah, blah, blah. And the church ends up absolving them. Oh, good. Of their sins. So they felt much better about it. And I got that information from history.com and Britannica.com. Wow. You know, I've never heard that story. I never watched the movie. I never, because you know what? It disturbs me. And then I get stressed out. Like, what if that was me? Like, all these crashes where people live and nobody see. I I just can't imagine what it must have been like. You've never heard that story? I've heard of the story. I've never actually heard what happened, though. I've never listened to the actual Mm. story. All right, Laurel, we're going from the Andes. Okay. We're going to the Himalayas. Okay. We're going to Nepal. And we're climbing Everest. Okay. I'm going to cover the story. Of the ill-fated Everest climb of May 10th, 1996. Okay. So a couple of years ago, long time ago, let's start a long time ago. Mm-hmm. In probably 97 or 98, the IMAX at the Museum of Science had Everest. I, yes, I remember right. that. And I remember going to the IMAX mm-hmm. and they took a team and they climbed to the top mm-hmm. of Everest and they took the IMAX to the top. It was, it was fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the end of the movie... They paid tribute to the people who died in that season. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like a blurb about the season. I can't remember what it said. And I was like, oh, that's sad. And then for some reason, a couple of years ago, I was I must have been watching something, a documentary, and I decided to read Into Thin Air by mm-hmm. John. Um, I'm going to say his name wrong. I'm going to call him Krakow, but that's not. It's like Krakow <laughs> or something like that. Krakatoa. Um, and I got hooked. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like deep diving into Everest because Everest, again, is one of those things like Rasputin. I'm always fascinated mm-hmm. by it. I think because I don't understand the drive. Mm-mm. It's history with death and 
that people are left there. Like I, it's fascinates yeah. me. So then I watched the movie Everest. Mm-hmm. My son went as an Everest survivor for Halloween. I did frostbite makeup <laughs> on me. It looked fucking amazing. Um, so we're going to cover Everest. And I'm going to try to cover the story the best I can. It gets very involved because the story is the people. Right. And so I'm going to... I can't give you everything he wrote, clearly, mm-hmm. or this would be a thousand hours long. Mm-hmm. So I'll do my best to cover these people and cover some of the things, but... If you really want to know the story, watch Everest. It It's a little different than the book, but it gives you a taste of it because mm-hmm. it's an unbelievable story. So first, we're going to talk a little, about, a little bit about Mount Everest. Okay. It's named after Sir George Everest, who in 1865 looked at it and said, I think that's the tallest mountain in the world. Yeah, you're fucking right it is. He got the uh, height wrong, but then they redid it. It's still the tallest mountain in the world. Yeah. So in 1924, George Mallory and Andrew Irvine were seen 800 feet from the summit before being engulfed by bad weather. They were not seen again until 1999 when their bodies were finally found still on Everest. The wind has blown a hole in the back of his jacket, but he's still wearing the same tweed jacket he climbed Everest in. Okay. So the first actual climbers to summit Everest don't summit till 1953, May 29th, 1953, which was Sir Edmund Hillary from New Zealand and his Sherpa, Tenzing Norgay. Mm -hmm. Tenzing Norgay's grandson, I believe, is one of the Sherpas that was on this Everest thing. So Everest, being the tallest peak in the world, most of the year is completely engulfed in the jet stream. Mm -hmm. So you almost can never see the top of it. You still see the winds whipping over it. It's unclimbable mm-hmm. for most of the year. In a very short time in May and a very short time in September, you get like a two-week window that you have to climb. Okay. Which is when anybody who's going to try to climb Everest, that's when they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are areas on the mountain. There is an area below the northern ridge of Everest that's known as Rainbow Valley. And it's called Rainbow Valley because it's filled with about 200 bodies. And the rainbow is all of the, the jackets. Oh. Because if you die on Everest. I knew it wasn't something good. It would cost you $75,000 to try to retrieve the body. And that's not a guarantee because it's extremely difficult mm-hmm. to get a body off. So bodies become landmarks on Everest. There's a guy called Green Boots. Mm-hmm. And he's laying on his side. And they never show you his face. And his green boots are sticking out. So they'll be like, okay, you're going to climb. You're going to go past the, uh, you know. Kaboo Falls and you're going to go past Green Boots mm-hmm. and then you're going to pass the woman with the flowing hair and then you're going to take a right. No. It, there's no. bodies all over this no. fucking mountain. I don't want directions that by it, passing yeah. bodies. Then they're, they're, that alone tells you why would you do this? Right. You know, because so they become like I also fucking, don't want to be a landmark. Right. Yeah. They become landmarks. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's also on any mountain is the death zone and the death zone is above 8,000 meters which is like 26,000 meters. It's like the cruising altitude of a 747. Mm-hmm. That's your death zone. You get above the death zone. You need oxygen to hike. There are purist hiker, climbers, alpinists, who believe you don't climb any of these without... The true climber will do it without oxygen. Okay. When you get to the death zone, you are dying by the minute. Mm-hmm. You are literally dying because your body, like the ocean, you are not meant to be... Hundreds of feet under the water mm-hmm. or thousands of feet in the air. That's not where we live. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about Mount Everest. It's the tallest mountain of them all at 29,029 
feet. Wow. As of May 23rd, 2021, 309 people have died on the mountain. That's it? That's it. You would think more. I would have but they've only were. been climbing it since 1953. Oh, yeah. All right. And not many people. And though. not many people. Yeah. So um, on May 10th, 1996, it sees one of its deadliest days. This yeah. is what we're going to talk about. But we got to talk a little bit about roots and stuff because you're going to hear them mentioned a lot. Mm-hmm. All right. So the the I can't even get to where I'm going to stay. So they, they, <laughs> you're going to land, I think, in Kathmandu and then you hike to this other city and then you hike to another town and then you make your way up to base camp. Okay. Base camp. It's a lively camp. It's at 17,500 feet is base camp. 17,000 feet is base yes. camp? Yes. Oh. Mount Washington's like 8,000 yeah. feet. Right. Okay? So we're, like we're doing two Mount Washington. Two Mount Washington to, to base get camp. base yeah. camp. To base camp. Yeah. It's a lively camp. It's like a small village with hundreds of tents with people from all over the world ringing of satellite phones and constant chatter among the groups. Hmm. Climbers usually rest at base camp for several days for acclimatization to reduce the risk of high altitude problems, which yeah. we'll get into those as well. You'll also see trekkers at base camp as well. Thousands of trekkers each year make their way to base camp. For a view of our beautiful mountain. So maybe, maybe I might go to base camp. I mean, we're really stretching here. I land, hey, base camp, look at top of Everest. Okay, see, I'm out. That's as far as I'm ever, ever oh, going to get, okay? Yeah. And that's your Even still, that's two okay. Mount Washington. Yeah. So I'm not doing it. You're going to talk about the Kumbu Icefall. Kumbu Icefall. That's at 17,999 feet. It is the most famous icefall and it snows the most dangerous sections of climbing Everest via the South Call route. Huge crevasses and large seracs, which are these ice things, uh-huh. all right, pose serious problems for climbers. Climbers Crossing through the Kumbu Icefall can take three to five hours for oh. a fit climber who is properly acclimatized for more than 12 hours for an average conditioned climber with insufficient acclimatization. Oh, so five hours for fit, 12 hours for unfit. And as you'll hear... There are many people who do not belong on fucking Everest, climbing Everest. Oh, my God. Most climbers try to head out as early as 4 a.m. before the ice begins to thaw, which decreases <gasps> the risk of danger when tra- traversing the Kumbu Icefall. Oh, my God. So, when you go to, you you decide you're going to climb Everest. Why? I don't fucking know. It's going to be a six-week expedition because you get to base camp and you're going to climb through the icefall and you're going to go to camp one and then you're going to come down. Then you're going to go to camp two, camp one, come down. Camp two, camp three, come down. Camp one, come down. Camp three, come camp four, down. Like you're going to keep to um, get used to the okay. altitude. So over the course of six weeks, you're going to go up and down fucking Everest. I don't know how many times oh before God. you're actually going to make the ascent to the top. Which is why the guy from 14 Peaks... He did it, and he just fucking climbed it. Just he's not. It. He doesn't have to get. He's from Nepal. He doesn't have to right. get climatized. So then you have Camp One, which is at nineteen thousand six hundred eighty-five feet, and at the end of the Kumbu Icefall is Camp One. Camp One is a vast area of endless snow, deep crevasses, and dangerous ice walls prone to avalanches. Awesome. You start early in the season, as by the end of May, the snow starts to soften, soften, which makes climbing more difficult. When leaving Camp One, climbers can also experience heat. Extreme heat in this section as there are no natural protections for the sun rays to climb to Camp 2. Really? And you also have to remember, you are 19,000 feet closer to the sun. Right. So they're going to the get burned hot. and it's fucking hot. Mm-hmm. And it's reflecting off the mm-hmm. white snow. snow and the yeah. ice. Camp. Now you're going to hear these camps repeatedly mentioned in the story. Camp 2, 21,000 feet. 
It is the last rocky outcrop. 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 You go outside and you crap. Mm-hmm. Outcrop before the lotsy face. Lotsy face. I never planned. They're all, you know, yeah. foreign words. I'm going to call it the lotsy, lotsy face. <laughs> camp 2 is considered to provide the most stunning views with clouds rolling in from the Himalayas into camp. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> the climb to Camp 3 is via the lotsy wall, lotsy wall, which can be very challenging. It is a sheet of ice and you need to be careful as you traverse, traverse Camp 3. It's carved into the mountain and your tent must be secured to the mountain. Nope, I don't like that. I don't like when they do that. I don't like to reach camp four. You need to traverse two rocky sections on the wall known as the yellow band and the black turtle, which lead to the death zone. So camp four is in the fucking death zone. Awesome. And they're staying there overnight many times. Okay. And at the end of the story, they spend a couple of nights in camp four. Oh my God. Camp four really should just be a peace stop. Camp (laughs) four, 26,300 feet. So death zone is above 2,600 feet. Camp four rests on a plateau mountain. Plateau between Mount Everest and the Lhotse, the fourth mountain on the earth, highest mountain on earth, called the South Call. And it is what is known as the Death Zone. Okay, so it's Camp 4 is in between, I guess, the two mount peaks. The two peaks. So you can go up, finish going up to the Lhotse or mm-hmm. Lhotse. Please don't judge me on my saying these. The Death Zone starts, there you go, here's your answer. The Death Zone starts at 23,000 feet and is where the body begins to die from lack of oxygen. The scenery camp for is magical as you have a clear view at many of the Himalayan giants rising through the clouds. Can't wait. You're also probably high from a lack of oxygen. Oh, it it's bad. Yeah. The summit, 29,029 feet. No. From camp four, you climb to the peak through the small plateau of the south summit. The south summit becomes crucial in this part okay. of the story. And then you cross the knife ridge. A sharp the knife bridge. Yep. That sounds awful. And it looks like, like the edge a blade of a knife. And yep. yeah. you're 29 no. fucking thousand feet in nope. the air. Nope. Okay? Nope. And then the Hillary steps in the middle. Hillary step after Sir Edmund Hillary. It is a steep rock face and the last major obstacle <laughs> before reaching the summit. <laughs> then they, they know they have to come back down, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's when everybody dies. Just check him. Because they get summit fever. Right. And they're- So they're so obsessed with reaching the summit, they get there. And then they, and then they collapse. Yeah. And they don't have any energy to get back down. Yeah. For those who reach the summit, they have accomplished something extraordinary. Yeah. But the seasoned mountaineers know that getting to the summit is only half the battle. Mm-hmm. They must have the strength and fortitude to get back down to base camp. So those are your camps. Okay. Those are your routes. Okay. Those are your landmarks. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. They all sound awful. Right. Yeah. So the moment you land in Kathmandu, if you live, say, in Swampscott, you're going to immediately hit altitude sickness mm-hmm. because you're not you're living at sea level. Mm-hmm. So you have altitude related. I have to cover all these because they all take place in the story and you mm-hmm. need to know what this shit is. All right. Altitude related illnesses account for about 38 of the 300 deaths. And, and it's the reason why many... Um, I don't know what I wrote. Oh, they have to abort the climb. So they start they getting sick. up and they start getting these sickness. So alt- altitude sickness can occur anytime you're above 8,000 feet above sea level. There are three levels of altitude sickness. So you start off with acute mountain sickness. You and I would get this if we flew into Denver. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to feel like a hangover. You're going to get dizzy. You're going to get a headache. You get muscle aches, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, loss of energy, shortness of breath, sleep problems, appetite problems. Usually, if you just chill for a couple of days at that altitude, your body's going to acclimate. Mm-hmm. 
These symptoms will start 12 to 24 hours of reaching a higher elevation as your body adjusts, you feel better. The second stage is HAPE, high altitude pulmonary edema. Yes. Risk factors for HAPE, prior history of altitude sickness. You ascend rapidly, like if somebody just dropped you on top of, you know, Brian was like, maybe somebody could just fly me to the top of Everest. The You'd moment be sick as shit. Yeah. The mo- you die. Yeah. Because you're immediately going to go into pulmonary mm-hmm. edema. Your body's going to be like, what the fuck? There's yeah. no air. Even with oxygen, I don't know if you could just drop somebody at right. the top of Everest. Maybe. Um, so you ascend rapidly from low elevation to over 8,000 feet. You're going to have medical problems. Oh, you have a history of medical problems breathing. Mm-hmm. So you already have bronchitis. You have pulmonary edema already. Mm-hmm. You have COPD. You, you're going to be fucked. Or you have um, not been at that altitude for weeks. So you, you were at there. You left. You've been gone three, four months. Your body's back to sea level. You go back. You could ad- you mm-hmm. could get it. Mm-hmm. So signs and symptoms of HAPE. Headache, shortness of breath, which worsens when, you, when you're resting. You're going to get oh. more short of breath resting. Dry cough at first, later frothy pink sputum in the cough. You're going to get high heart rate, weakness, chest pain, and you start with a low-grade fever. Your treatment is to get them out of the altitude immediately. They need rest and they need supplemental O2. If it's severe, you're going to go right into death. Okay. The well, pulmonary, pulmonary edema is never good. Always bad. Never good. And so if your pulmonary edema isn't bad enough, the third stage is haste. High altitude cerebral edema. Oh, God. So, yeah. so now your brain's fucked. Yeah. All right. So you're going to get ataxia, which that's difficulty speaking, right? Like you can't get your words out. Like I extreme have every day. Fa- yeah. Extreme <laughs> fatigue, altered mental status, and it can produce to a coma and brain hemorrhage and death within 24 hours. Treat me- treatment is immediate descent until symptoms improve. And if you can't descend, they actually have, they look like sleeping, bag- sleeping bags, little portable Hyperbaric chambers. Oh, really? To get your body back to where it needs to be. Um, Okay. So because it's so dangerous to climb Mount Everest and people are trying to prevent it, you need a permit to climb. So Nepal keeps um, making it higher and higher and higher. And so it could be up to $70,000 to get a permit. But then China's like, eh, $1,500. So everybody will go and climb. Because Everest rests on Nepal-China border. So Mm -hmm. Tibet's on one side, Nepal's on the other. So they'll just go up the Tibet side. So Nepal loses all that money and they need it. So they are trying to um, limit how many people go in a party, how much money. They they still are charging more than China, but it's easier access from the Nepal side. So people are willing to pay Mm -hmm. it. Um, The people on this particular expedition in 1996 paid $65,000 a piece to climb Everest. You are paying $65,000 to almost definitely commit suicide. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. exactly. $65,000. And the other problem is you have to climb with oxygen. Each person is requiring multiple cans of oxygen and they just leave them on Everest. Mm-hmm. So they've also started a program for the Sherpas and for um, climbers that if you bring one down, they'll pay you to bring a bottle down. Uh-huh. But it kills me to think that this beautiful, pristine know, just piece of nature is littered with bodies and trash. Mm-hmm. So Rob Hall is one of the characters of the story. Rob Hall started adventure of course i'm blanking on the second half of the name he starts an adventure company he is the first person to commercialize 
the climb to Everest. Mm -hmm. So he starts a company, you pay him $65,000 and he will take you to the top of Everest. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had climbed Everest multiple times before. He's a great guy. Everybody loved him. He is married and his wife is pregnant when he goes in May 1996. Mm -hmm. On his team, God, drive me crazy that I can't remember the name of his um, adventure consultants. Adventure consultants is what the name of the group is. He also has another guide, Mike Groom. Mm -hmm. There is Andy Harold Harris. He's a young guy, nice guy. Um, So he's got these three guides. They've all climbed with him as well. Mm -hmm. They also have Sherpas with them. I can never pronounce their names. Yeah. So each group, there was multiple groups this day going up, but I'm only going to talk really about two. And each group, their Sherpa guides were fiercely loyal to the heads of their groups. Mm -hmm. So Mike, um, not Mike Room, Rob Hall's Sherpa, like I think it was Anna Dory, and I'm going to get his name wrong, but he was like obsessed with Mike. I mean, with Rob, he was his best friend. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can't go through everybody, but you have to know some major characters. So Doug Hansen is one of the members of the, um, an everyday Joe Schmo that's going to climb. He's a postal worker in the U.S. He tried to summit Everest the year before 1995, and he didn't make it to the top. I'm sorry. A postal worker? He's a postal worker. Yeah. Could pay twice. The second time people, like, the big thing was he, school kids, helped raise money for him to get this trip and Rob, because it was his, he couldn't make it the first time, discounted him the trip. Okay. Because that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. In 1996, he worked three more. jobs to get this. <gasps> oh my God. So the first year he went, he almost gets to the top. He has to get turned back. And when he would get to the top and once he has to turn back, he collapses. He's like a zombie. They can barely get him back down the mountain. He suffers frostbite and he was having breathing issues on that trip. Before he, so he, he doesn't make it to the top in 1995 and Rob calls him and he's like, I could never forgive myself. I had to make it to the top. This was like, I would, I had to do it again. And Rob convinces him, let's do this again. He gives him the discount, this and that. A month before he goes on the trip, he has major larynx surgery. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that sounds bad. Yep. Yep. Dr. Beck Weathers. He's a pathologist from Texas. Mm-hmm. This guy is a fucking badass so all i'm going to tell you okay. you'll hear about him later right. yasuka namba she is a japanese woman she is 47 years old and she's hoping to be the oldest woman to summit all seven peak uh all 14 peaks or, or seven summits maybe it's the seven a continent each continent yeah because there's the 14 peaks and then there's the highest on every continent okay. so i think she this was her seventh she was going to do that yeah all right, so John Krakauer, he's the guy, that's the name Krakauer, not Crackhead. So that's the guy who writes the book Into Thin Air. He is a journalist for um, Outside Magazine. Okay. And both Rob Hall's group, and you're going to hear about Scott Fisher's group, he was supposed to go and write for Scott Fisher's group, but Rob Hall's group gets him. Okay. All right, so the, he's climbing Everest for free. He is an experienced climber. That's why he works for Outside Magazine. Mm-hmm. He had done it. So he is, his company, I think, wants him there to write about all the shit that's going on in Everest, yeah. all this, all these people climbing. But, you know, he's going to climb. He's he's really psyched about this. Mm-hmm. So he pays for a year. He, he put off the whole assignment so he could train to climb Everest. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me again. Um, then you have a Stuart Hutchinson. He's from California. 
Frank Fishback. He's from China. <sighs> Lou Cossickle and John, Dr. John Task. Cossickle is from the USA. Task is from Australia. Susan Allen's from Australia. Nancy Hutchinson's from Canada. Canada is whatever. Canada. Canada. Okay, so then you have Mountain Madness. This is a United States group that kind of is copying what Rob Hall is doing. They're head by Scott Fisher. In the movie, he's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Why? Because he looks nothing like Scott Fisher. That's <laughs> all I can write. So he's a U.S. guy. He's climbed Everest, but he's never guided Everest. So he has to prove himself on this mountain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, at home, he has a wife. The wife is, and he's got a little son. It's nine. Scott's one of these. All of these people are fucked. They're all these weird people that want to camp in the fucking rainforest, mm-hmm. eat bugs like bear grills. They do weird shit. Mm-hmm. I can't wrap my head around yeah. it. I'm sure they get off on it. I'm sure they see the best views in the world. I'm good. Yeah. All right. I'm good. So on a previous um, expedition, he picks up. I am going to have it written down. He picks up um, a bug. He picks up a uh, parasite. Okay. I'll give you the name later. I'm going to come across it later on in my notes. This parasite comes and goes. Okay. He never really can get rid of it. When it comes out, it causes extreme fatigue, fevers, chills. Mm. He gets bloody shits. Mm. When he's stressed, it comes out more. Mm. So normally it will appear once a week, once a month. He'll see it. Before he even gets going, it's happening every day to him. Mm. He's under the weather. On this trait. Okay. Well, he's probably stressed about climbing Correct. Mount Everest. Correct. Yeah. He has a guide, Anatoly Bukharo. He is a Russian guy. He is everything you would think a Russian guy is. Mm-hmm. He's hardcore. He climbs without oxygen because that's how it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. No real climber climbs with oxygen. You're pansies. And he's just, he, and his, part of his quest is he wants to do the 14 peaks. Okay. So he's also part of that. Neil Beetleman is another guide mm-hmm. on this trip. Then you have Sandy Hill Pittman. She is a reporter for the New York Times, I think. Oh. She She's a New York reporter. Mm-hmm. They snag her because Krakauer went with um, Rob's group. Mm-hmm. She's a real pain in the ass. She's everything you would expect from a New Yorker. No offense to New Yorkers, because I'm sure most of you are great. But an elite New Yorker, let's say that. You know, once... She's at base camp. She wants her cappuccino machine. She wants kiwis flown in. She wants her own radio. She needs what? special battery. She's a pain You're in the... Nepal going up Mount it Everest. Didn't, she didn't care. Oh she God. is a pain in the balls. And it's very controversial when you get to the end of the story. She takes a huge hit mm-hmm. and a big blame for everything that happens. You have Charlotte Fox, Tim Madsen, Pete Showing, Kiev Showing, um... Len, I can't, Gremagard, he's from Denmark, Martin Adams, Jane Bromat, and uh, Adele Cruz. We're not going to talk about most of these people, mm-hmm. all right? The people I'm giving you a background to are really the people that I'm going to talk about. All right, so we're going to start the story. John leaves March of 1996 to start this journey to Everest, all right? He's making his way. They go through Kathmandu, and they end up at base camp in Everest. And over the, like I said, over the course of six weeks, they're up and down and up and down and up and down. And, you know what happens on Everest. So they're the first expedition of the season and the Sherpas go ahead of them. The Sherpas do everything. They They carry all the food, all the water. They do all the cooking. They set up the tents. They set up the lines. They set up the ladders. So they go ahead and they 
are taking care of making sure of, because you're basically climbing a rope, mm-hmm. like a rope ladder, not a ladder, like you're holding onto a rope the whole way up to yeah. find the way. They get to base camp, and during this time, one of the Sherpers is suffering from hape already. Oh. And it's severe. He winds up dying mm-hmm. before they even start the climb, and the Sherpas are very superstitious. Mm-hmm. So they're already like, the mountain's mad. This yeah. isn't, a, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this, but there's a lot of fucking money involved right. now. A lot of money, a lot of drive, a lot of everything behind this. Mm-hmm. So they watch the weather and they watch the weather and they watch the weather and they decide May 10th, there's going to be a break in the weather and this is the day we're going to make the ascent. All right. So I got to look at my notes here because I then switch to another page. Okay. So May 10th. They are, it's like four in the morning. No, it's like midnight. All right. They climb to camp three and it's just like hurricane. And they're like, okay, we're going to wait. And were they in camp? No, they're at camp four. And they have to sleep with oxygen. The because whole, they're in the death zone. They're in the death zone. And the whole six weeks, they're all deteriorating. Mm-hmm. You're losing weight. You're losing sleep. You got the shits. Mm-hmm. They all have a cough because you're not meant to, they're not acclimating. Right. So they're already all just not in peak condition Mm -hmm. when you're climbing even with the oxygen they get like really fucked in the head Mm -hmm. they get cloudy you get hazy so the thought of being in the most dangerous place on earth and not and not having my critical thinking Mm -hmm. skills with me i don't Mm -mm. i I just don't understand Mm -hmm. okay so they're all in camp four rob's like may 10th we're doing this camp four i want you right the they're literally you see them in the movie they're just Win, 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 win. It's like a fucking hurricane and then dead quiet. It's like, like I said, 12 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Dead quiet. Rob's like, let's go. Be ready to go in a half an hour. Okay. They set a turnaround time of two o'clock in the afternoon. If we do not summit by two o'clock in the afternoon, we absolutely have to turn around to be back at base camp by at four in time to be safe. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, and then here I go. Here's Scott's issue. He has... He has, he has Entomoeba histolytica. Sounds terrible. It's a parasite that if you put anything that's touched feces into your mouth, you get this. So you're in these right backwoods countries, you know, there's feces in the water and shit. That's how he gets it. So he is sick. The Adventure Consultant Group, the, Mar- the Mountain Madness, so Rob Hall's group, Scott Fisher's group, and a Taiwanese group all decide May 10th is going to be their day. There are multiple other countries at base camp. South Africa's there. The IMAX team that I watched, they are there that day. They're all going to summit another day. So these three groups decide they're going to get to the top. Mm-hmm. The Taiwanese are a little bit of a problem because they're kind of like jumping, like uh, leapfrogging and piggybacking them. And, co- you know, so mm-hmm. they're causing a problem. So Rob Hall and Scott Fisher decide to pair up together and try to summit both of their teams together on May 10th. Okay, so they start. 33 of them start up from the top. Um, immediately, not like an hour into the climb, Doug, the postman, steps out of line and he's just kind of standing there. And John, the writer, he is like kind of, he'll pass people. He's a better climber, mm-hmm. so he's climbing faster. So he's hopping them off the line. So you, if you want to pass them, you've got to unclick from the line no. the Sherpa set. you got to walk around them and click back on and get up the mountain. Mm-hmm. No, no. I'll stay right behind right. you. So yeah. Doug is kind of hanging out and 
Rob comes up to him, says something to Doug, and Doug gets back in line and starts climbing. Okay. Now, D Rob is very adamant that nobody can climb ahead of them. You have to wait for the pack. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're going and they're like I said, at some point, all three teams become one big clump mm -hmm. because it's just too packed up there. Yeah. On the start of the climb, Sandy Pittman. There, this is a big confusing part, too. Um, the Sherpa for Scott's team is always in front. That's his position. He stays in front. He sets the lines. He keeps everybody going. For whatever reason, he decides Sandy Pittman is the weak one, and he short ropes her. When you short rope somebody, oh, he, he ties, ties himself to her. For six hours, he short ropes her. So by the time he gets up to... He's, he's half dead himself. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's part of the thing, too. And she's the writer for New York. She's the New York writer. Okay. All right. So John's a really strong climber. He keeps making his way to the head of the pack, but then he has to sit and wait 90 minutes in negative 70 degree weather and it's frostbite in the death zone. Mm -hmm. He's burning up O2 and he has to wait. And then they all catch up and then he'll go a little further and then they all catch up. And, he, you know, he's kind of getting frustrated. Mm -hmm. So um, they get to a certain point. And there's no lines set up because the Lobsang, who was the Sherpa, Carrie and Pittman, was supposed to, they, they were supposed to go up on the ninth and do it. Nobody put the lines up. He was supposed to be up to make sure everything was done. He doesn't get up to the front. The only things left are the remnants from the year before. But after the wind's up there, there's not right. much left. They got to wait 90 more minutes mm. for them to set the rest of the lines up, the Hillary step and up to the top. All right. So, um... Sandy Pittman claims that she never asked Lopsang to do that. And people are like, yeah, but you never unclipped yourself either. You could have done it yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's no lines. Now they're bottlenecked at the top, at the bottom um, of the Hillary steps. They're bottlenecked waiting. On that the, knife edge. Yeah. Waiting. There's 33 of them waiting to summit. And they're wasting precious time mm -hmm. and precious oxygen waiting for that to get up. So, um... As the traffic jam gets worse, those in the back are getting farther and farther behind. Now, Scott Fisher is supposed to be guiding his group, but he's he's in the back. During the base camp days, he kept having to go up and like just before they summit, he had to keep going back and forth, bringing people down for whatever reason. He's getting weaker and weaker. Mm -hmm. And everybody's like, Scott, you don't look good. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I got this. I'm going to nobody's going to tell him no. You know, mm -hmm. he's got this, but he's fucking exhausted and he's got the shits mm -hmm. he's not doing well so they're getting way way behind um at 11 30 so john I, it's, I i'm gonna jump around because i get um i get a little behind myself here okay so now they've finally set all the ropes john says to rob look can i just get up there he's like yeah go ahead get up to the top so he summits takes a couple pictures they rejoice he doesn't Really, because he's so addle-brained at this point mm. from the lack of box, he can't really enjoy the top of the summit. But they take a couple of pictures. The Russian guide makes it to the top with him, and I think Mike Room is at the top with him, which is um, one of Rob Hall's guys. So one of Scott Fisher's guys is at the top, and Rob Hall, uh, one of Rob Hall's guys at the top. The three of them do their thing. Krakow's like, "Fucking see you later. I'm I'm heading back down." There, one of shortly after he gets to the top, I don't remember the guy's name. One of the other climbers is an airline pilot. And Krakow's like, I look and I, I saw clouds, 
I'm in the sky. I don't think anything of it. The airline pilot, who's trained to know clouds, looked at the clouds, knew these are thunderhead clouds. Mm -hmm. He's like, when we're flying, you get the fuck away from those clouds. I'm climbing and going the fuck down. Mm -hmm. As they were climbing, before they even summit, three of the climbers from, I believe, Rob's group were like, it's already too late in the day. We're freezing. We've been waiting out here for an hour. Mm -hmm. They headed back. They went right back to Camp 4 and they were going to wait for everybody else. So they may have even been after John because John comes down the mountain and he sees Beck Weathers. Now, Beck Weathers was climbing. Before he had had this experience, uh, had started climbing Everest a couple of years prior, he had eye surgery. Oh. The pressure of the air mm -hmm. and the cold, he, he's going blind. He yeah. can't see. So at some point he was making the other climbs because he was stepping in people's footprints, but now he can't he can't even do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So Rob he tells Rob, I can't see anymore. I can't I can't do this. And Rob's like, sit here and wait for me. I'll be back in like an hour. Mm -hmm. Wait for me, promise me you'll wait for me. In the movie it's played differently, but in the book, this is what he's mm -hmm. told. Wait for me, do not move because then I won't know where you are. Yeah. He's like, Okay. So he's fucking freezing, sitting there Same waiting. Still. So John comes by, he's like Beck, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm cold. Um, but Rob told me to wait here. He's like, well, I'll take you down. He's like, no, no, I'll, I'll wait for Rob. I'll wait till Rob comes down. The three people who turn around pass him. They're like, Beck, come down with us. We'll take you down. He's like, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll wait for Rob. I'll wait for a guide or something. I, I'll wait for them. And he's just sitting there fucking mm -hmm. freezing to death. Okay. So um, he is... On the way down, now Andy Harris Harold is another guide on Rob's team. On the way down, he's passing Andy because Andy's going back and forth. And he, he says to Andy, can you like, I want to conserve my energy. Can you turn my O2 down? And he's like, yep, cranks it. Mm -hmm. So now he blows through all his oxygen. All right. Page one. All right. As he's coming down, he's looking at all these climbers. Now he's on the Who way. Is? John, he's okay. like, it's 1130, you know, and the turnaround's two o'clock. He's already an hour down. He knows these people are never going to make the fucking top and nobody's turning around. So he could see they're tired and they can barely walk and they still have like three hours more to climb. Mm -hmm. So um, he already has a couple of climbers turned back and Rob, he is upset that he, only three of his climbers are going to summit because that's not going to look good next year when he's going to do this. Yeah. So John is like an hour in the death zone. Um, and he's feeling it mentally, like the mental problems come in big in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he sees this Andy Harris Harold. He's next to a stash of O2 bottles. So they stashed O2 bottles on the Southern summit mm -hmm. or the Southern call. I don't know, Southern somewhere. They stash a bunch of O2 bottles. John's like, I need an O2 bottle. Harold's like, they're all empty. He's like, they're not empty, John. I, they're, give me an O2 bottle. He's like, no, they're empty. He's like, I've tested them all. They're all empty. He's like, they're not empty. I know there's fresh bottles. So at this point, they're like, either Harold's valve had frozen up and he couldn't, Andy, Andy Harold's valve had frozen up and he couldn't tell. Mm -hmm. Well, he was already suffering mentally mm -hmm. and he didn't recognize it because he's already suffering mentally. So he just kind of fucking ignores him. He takes an oxygen tank and he starts back down the mountain. So now he's, as he's coming down, now he's hitting clouds and it's getting hard and now it's starting to snow, wind's kicking up, mm -hmm. shit's getting real. Mm -hmm. And that's going up the mountain. Mm -hmm. All right. Rob, he's passing Rob as well because Rob is waiting for Doug. He's waiting for Yosoko. 
and he has to wait and he has to wait and he go back. So Doug's like, uh, not Doug, John Krakauer is like, I'm going back to get base forward. Can I, do I have to wait for you? He's like, no, go get back there. So even though it's snowing and even though the storm's coming in, Rob's still trying to get to the summit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now two o'clock has come and gone. Mm -hmm. Three o'clock has come and gone. Now it is four o'clock. Rob is calling base camp because at base camp, each team has doctors and staff that run the thing. He's calling base camp. He's like, we're still up. I'm waiting on Doug. He's going to come around the corner any minute now. And they're like, okay, well, you got to get the fuck out of there because there's a storm coming. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to get out of here. We're going to get out of here. When they show you the movie, you see Doug get to the top and touch the top and then do the same fucking thing completely collapse mm -hmm. nobody knows what really happened when Doug got to the top but they do know he could they don't know if he ever you know if he may have summited what happened they could not get him to move after that he fucking collapses at four o'clock storms cut, like on them mm -hmm. as one of the other guides is coming down now this is at like um 445 he Somebody sees Beck Brothers again. I think Mike Groom sees him. And now Mike Groom, Sandy Pittman, Yasuku, Beck Weathers, and a couple other, um, Charlotte Fox, her boyfriend, which I can't remember who he is, and another person. They, they have a group, a comp of seven, trying mm -hmm. to come down. They're like two hours behind John Krakauer. He's already fucking on the way down. Mm -hmm. They form a clump to try to get down together. They can't see because the visibility is now zilch. Oh the storm has hit. The wind chill has dropped. They are literally trying to climb back down Everest in a hurricane. All right. It's fucking mm -hmm. bad. They pick up Beck. They go down. Um, oh, he went with them. He went. He, he goes down with the other. Yeah. Finally, um, with the other scoop. Okay. So they're coming down and it's going to jump between people of what's going on with everybody at the same time. So John Krakauer is talking about his descent down. He can't see. He's this. And he it's like walking through um, like a dream. He can't move his legs. Mm -hmm. And then he'd have to stop and take a breath because now he's run out of oxygen again. They're blowing through tanks. And he sits. And he knows he's close to the camp because he used to like, if he hikes, he, he memorizes everything around him. Mm -hmm. I know that that's this. that, And so he's like, this is the only way I found my way back. So he... Um, they're at the top of like an ice fall. So that's the last thing to get to the camp. And he sees this guy come. He thinks this guy is Andy Harris. And the guy comes over and says something to him. He's like, where are the camp? Where the, where's camp for? He's like, it's there, but we got to get down this ice fall. And the guy's like, I'm fucking going. He's like, no, we better wait for nails and stuff. And he's like, nope, I'm going. He said, and I watched this guy sit on his ass and start going down this ice fall. He's like, and I watch him, it's like 200 feet. Yeah. He's like, and I watch him get to the bottom, get up and start walking to the tents. He's like, so I know Andy's in the tents. Okay. He starts slowly picking his way down. He gets to the bottom. He can't find the fucking tents. Mm -hmm. He walks around for like an hour before he finally stumbles on the tent. Oh my God. Now at this point, it's like eight o'clock at night. All right. They mm -hmm. started climbing at midnight the night before. Mm -hmm. All right. So he gets into the tent. John's exhausted he can't even move he literally collapses mm -hmm. and andy's not in that tent he doesn't know what the fuck happened to andy okay so now john's in the tent here come the other seven climbers mm -hmm. coming down the tent 
and they can't see. It's taking them forever. And now at 8 o'clock, the Russian guide's back at camp. I don't know why he gets back at camp before his team, but he's back at camp. Mm -hmm. And he knows now, You like, this storm is off the charts. Mm -hmm. And he knows they're all still out there. He's got to fucking find them. So he's trying to rouse people, the people who departed earlier who mm -hmm. made it. He's trying to rouse everybody. He can't get anybody up. So he's got, like, headlights on. He's out with pots, pots and pans. Can't get anybody. Oh, my God. So this second group, they get down this little ice fall. But they get lost again because they're, they're like 300 feet from the tent, but they can't find it. Mm -hmm. They get lost. So they're hunkered down behind a rock oh trying God. to break the breeze from the wind. And at this point, Becca's, Becca Weathers is bad and Yosuko's not. She's not doing well either. Mm -hmm. So Beck Weathers at some point stands up. He's almost incoherent. He mouths like, I know what I'm doing. And he gets blown out of sight mm -hmm. down. All right. They're like, oh, he's fucking dead. Yeah. Yosuku is laying in the snow and they're looking at her and they're like, oh, she don't look good. I think she's dead. And she like sits up for a minute, raises her hands, lays back down, never moves again. So they're hunkered. And Toli, the Russian guide, finds them. I don't know how he finds them, but he finds them. And he's like, I can only save one of you at a time. Sandy Pittman at this point is a fucking mess. She's incoherent. She's crying. She doesn't want to die. She can't breathe. Mm -hmm. They are all a mess. Mm -hmm. So he starts one by one carrying them back to mm -hmm. the tents. He finally gets the last two out of there. He looks at Yosuku. He's like, she's fucking dead. He looks at Beck Weathers. He's dead. They go back to the tent. Can't get those. Okay. Scott Fisher. He gets to the top. He is sick. He's exhausted. He starts, I don't even know if he makes it to the top. At one point, they see one of the Taiwanese hikers. His name is like Gao. He's just sitting in the snow. And Scott's like, he says to the Sherpa who's climbing with him, he's like, I'm done. I can't do anymore. And he just sits in the snow and lays down. And they're like, but you got to move. We got to yeah. get you out of here. He's like, I am done. And he just lays down. Oh, God. Now you got Rob Hall. And Doug at the top. This storm hits. They're at the top of the Hillary steps. They haven't even made it to the bottom yet. And Doug is a zombie. He's comatose. He can't fucking move. He mm -hmm. can't get him down. And he's run out of oxygen. So they're like, Doug, we've got to get you oxygen. And you can hear Doug, him on the radio because base camp's monitoring everything. We've got to get you oxygen. You've got to get down. You've got to get down. You've got to get down. And he's like, he's incoherent. He can't even speak. Mm -hmm. So this is, I'm going back in time. This is earlier in the day. Andy Harris is on the radio. Now, John thinks he's back at camp. Andy Harris is on the radio and he's saying, Rob is saying, I need oxygen. I'm at the South Summit. You've got to bring me oxygen up here. And Andy's like, we have no oxygen. Base camp is trying to reply. There was oxygen there. Mm -hmm. No. And every time somebody would reply, there was oxygen at that summit. Andy would chime in, no, there isn't, no, there isn't, no, there isn't. At some point, he finally realizes there are our tanks, and he's going to try to bring oxygen tanks to Rob. Mm -hmm. He has never heard from again. Mm. Okay? Nobody really knows what fucking... If you look in the... I'll tell you about what they portray it in the movie, but you really look at him again, never heard from again. So, now Rob and Doug are at the South Summit, and this storm is outrageous. Rob is calling, and base camp's like nobody can get to you right now mm -hmm. you're gonna have to hunker down where you are and wait it out 
So they're like, where's Doug? And all he can tell you is Doug is gone. <laughs> Again, nobody knows what happens to Doug. I'll tell you what happens in the movie, <laughs> but it's nobody knows what really happened to these guys. <laughs> Rob is at the top of the summit. He's exhausted. He has no oxygen either. Mm-hmm. He's cold. He's a mess. So he's kind of hunkered in this little lee as well. And at some point, they're actually calling his wife at home, who's eight months pregnant. And she's talking to him like, you've got to move. You've got to start walking. Mm-hmm. You've got to start walking. Nope, can't fucking do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next morning hits. There's a break in the storm. And the Sherpa's Try climbing again to Rob. He is still talking to people. He somehow survives the fucking night. Oh negative 100 degree wind chill. No. Negative 70 degree temps. Hurricane force winds. He survives the night. At the summit of Mount At Everest. At the summit of Mount Everest. And he he's saying to them, my oxygen tank is frozen. And they're trying to chip it. And it's taking them hours. And, you know, maybe he can get some oxygen. He does at some point free his oxygen, but it's not enough. Yeah. And everybody's like, Rob, just start climbing down. Just start climbing down. And, you know, you, you can theorize. You can Monday morning quarterback. Maybe he could have met the sharpest halfway. But he's fucking just spent the night right. out in Everest. And he's like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And, he, you know, in the movie, they predict him trying to make it a little bit. But then the sharpest have to turn back because here comes another storm. Oh, my God. Worse than the one the night before. So if they even want to leave Camp 4, they can't because this storm's bad. Before the storm hits, they're starting to pack up at Camp 4. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys looks, he goes, who the fuck is that walking into camp? Oh, yeah. Here comes Beck Weathers, what? who just also spent the night out outside in the fucking storm. Yeah. He comes in. His arm is like in a salute because it's frostbitten <gasps> that way because he didn't have a glove on either. His hand is black, oh. frozen solid. And he's stumbling into camp. Frostbit face, oh. frostbit hands. They put, you know, packs all over him, put him in a couple of sleeping bags, and they stick him in one of the tents. Mm. All right. Boom, second storm hits. They're all hunkering, hunkering down. And before the second storm hits, they're talking to Rob on the phone. And he's like, I- I'll do another night. Just somebody has to be here by nine o'clock in the morning. You have to get somebody here by nine o'clock in the morning. And they're like, we'll try, Rob, we'll try. And again, they patch his wife through again. They pick the child. He wa- they knew it was a girl. They- he's like, name her Sarah for me. His final words I have written down here somewhere are like, Sleep tight, my love. I love you. That's the last they ever hear from Rob Hall. Okay, frozen solid up there. So the next night comes down and um, they're awake. They're packing up to Camp 4. they got to get everybody out of there because mm-hmm. it's bad. I'm sorry. Before the second storm hits again, the Sherpas find Scott Fisher and this Gao who have also uh. spent the night. Gao is still alive. Oh, my God. So they fucking pick Gao up and they bring him out. Scott Fisher is barely breathing. They know, like eyes were fixed and dilated. The Russian guy is the one who found them. He puts Scott's pack over his face as like a shroud. Mm-hmm. That's where Scott stays. Mm-hmm. So now both guides have died at the top of yeah. Everest. So now they're packing up. They're trying to get everybody out. And they just figure like there's no way Beckwith has lived. He died. He mm-hmm. had to have died. Now the night the second storm hits... It's ripping the tents apart. So John Krakow and the guy he's, I think, Hutchinson, he's in the tent with, they're leaning against the back of the tent trying to hold it together because if it collapses, they're fucking done. Mm -hmm. These tents are a disaster in the morning. They're packing up. they got to get to Camp 2. And you got to figure, they could climb through all that shit just to get back to Camp 2. So 
somebody john's like i i peeked into beck's tent just to see you know i'm sure he was dead <laughs> beck pulls over he's like where the fuck have you been <laughs> and like what the tent has collapsed on his face oh and he's like with those winds it was pressed against his face oh. he can't breathe so the wind would let up he'd take a breath boom back in his face the snow bags, uh, the sleep bags blow off, but his hands are so frostbitten he can't help himself. Oh. The wristwatch he was wearing, now his arm is swollen up. It's cutting off the, he was miserable, beside himself, freezing to death again. Yeah. And he's like, where the fuck have you been? So one of the things they would do to these hikers when they would get this bad is they would give them shots of dexamethasone or oral dexamethasone to get them going. So they need to get back off this mountain. They can't carry him off this mountain. So they shoot him up with a bunch of decamethasone. Fucking guy starts climbing down oh the mountain. God. Okay, he's with got frostbitten, frostbitten hands, hands that he can't use. Frostbitten face. He's fucking blind. And his feet are a mess. Now, they've already called his wife and told him. She's dead. He's dead. Like, he's done. Okay. So they climb down. They finally make it to Camp 2. Camp 2's mess tent has been made into a hospital. All right. The first team arrives. They've got Gao. They, they're trying to defrost his hands, this and that. And they're like, this is the worst frostbite we've ever seen. Can we take pictures? And like this picture's him like, eh, with his frostbite <laughs> hands. And crack hours in there and he hears, okay, get ready. We're bringing Weathers in. And it's like, he's thinking, there's no way he survived the climb. Yeah. Nope. Here comes Weather. And then they're like, oh no, this is the worst <laughs> frostbite we've ever seen. So they're taking pictures of him too. And he's just got that Texan spirit. He's like, he's laughing through it, you know, even though it's this bad. So they got to get helicopters to camp too. To get them out. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm sorry I'm hitting the mic, so it's going to make a thud. Camp 2 helicopters. If the hikers are never to fucked, the people flying the helicopters are more mm -hmm. fucked. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it never dawned on me until I watched a special on these hikers. There's no air for the blades to catch. Yeah. Okay. So they have to strip the helicopters of everything but the pilot. There's no seats. There's no nothing. And they can only take one person at a time. <laughs> so... They fly and they, oh, you see him hovering and hovering and hovering and oh, he just gets the road, the blades, um, the runners onto the edge of the mountain. Okay. No, no. <laughs> and I'm only going to say this part of the movie is true because I've seen it on the special. So they can only take one of the guy. They're going to take Gao first and they don't even know if they can come back for Beck. And so they're already thinking, how are we going to get him down the ice fall mm -hmm. back to base camp? <laughs> they take the helicopter and they turn it around. With the rotors, you know, they kind of fly it around and they place it on the edge and they're like, okay, we're going to go head first until the air catches the rotors. No. Nope. So they fucking dive on the oh side God. of the mountain and he's flying it. There's no, the rotors aren't even moving, moving. at this no. point and, and whoom, the air catches it. And I was like, no, no, no. Who does no. that? Slide Who? me down the fall. I'll try my luck. I would be in a gigantic diaper because no. I would shit myself. No. Like, no, no, no. Push so, me down the fall. Right. I will try my luck. So they're thinking like, I don't know how we're going to get back out of here. And they hear the rotors come back. They were able to take him down as well. So what John thought happened to Andy Harris is he thought he was the man that he saw, you know, scoot down the thing. And he thought he got lost making it to the Camp 4 tent and that he literally walks off the side of Everest. Mm -hmm. And it isn't for my... He tells everybody the story. Because when they all get back, the report, everybody wants to know what the fuck happened up yeah. there. That's not really what happened to Andy Harris. Andy Harris is last seen trying to get oxygen back to Rob. Mm -hmm. And Harris's family was pissed that this is the story that went out, that he walks off the side of Everest. And 
Krakow took a lot of heat for a lot of the stories he told, but he's like, you know, I was addle-brained. Yeah. I thought, I mean, and it isn't until he's talking to another hiker, I think it was Mike Room. I can't remember who it was he was talking to. It's in the book. He's talking to another hiker and the hiker's like, yeah, I was coming down. I can't see shit. And I see this guy sitting there and I talked to him and the guy's like, yeah, you should get some ropes and stuff to get down that ice fall. And he was like, are you on your fucking mind? He's like, so I slid down. I start falling. My ice pack, catch, my ice pick catches me out of my backpack, oh my stops my fall. I land, got up and I walked into camp. <laughs> and he's like, it wasn't until I talked to him, I realized I made a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandy Pittman is highly criticized for exhausting the Sharpas to the brink that they just, it couldn't go. It was detrimental to the trip. Mm-hmm. In the movie, Doug is seen where you can see Rob trying to get him down, trying to get him down, and he he's out of it. And they're clipped to a rope, and they're walking this narrow ledge. Mm-hmm. And he turns to Doug, and he's like, don't move. I, I'm going to get help. Or I'm going to get here. And he turns back around and Doug unclips himself off the side of the mountain. In the movie, Andy Harris is portrayed as having found Rob. And they're huddled together on Mm -hmm. this. And he gets the paradoxal hypothermia. And he's undressing and off the side he goes. They've never found them. Right. Twelve days later, hikers were hiking. They find Rob Hall frozen, laying down. Mm Mm-hmm. He may still be up there, as far as I know. Scott Fisher is still up there. Their families had asked people to bring keepsakes back. I think somebody brought back a few things, but they just, they didn't really want to disturb the bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, multiple people had asked, reached out for help. Like, they were looking for extra oxygen, and they needed more powerful batteries for the radio. So they asked the South African team, can we borrow your radio, uh, your batteries? Nope. Go fuck yourself. Ask somebody else. Nope. Go fuck yourself. The Americans, you can say what you want about Americans. They offered climbers. They offered their Sherpas. They gave them tons of oxygen, even though the IMAX team was $5 million invested in this for mm-hmm. the thing. They helped mm-hmm. as much as they could. And I was like, every time you hear something in this story, the Americans stopped to help. Mm-hmm. So at another point, I mean, these are more deaths that happened. There were three um, climbers from India. They were trying to get to the top. They think they summit the top, and they call and they say they summit the top, and they didn't. They are dying. The Jap and this is it was not the same night. It was later on. A couple of Japanese people climbing, uh, hikers climbing. The Indian people asking for help. Go fuck yourself. They went to the top. Now, easier said than done. Mm-hmm. I can't say if I was Rob Hall, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have let Doug bite it because he winds up dying anyway, and Rob life cost it for that. Granted. He would never be able to run that company again with right. having let his clients die. Mm-hmm. But at some point, right. you could help yourself, mm-hmm. you know. So they get back, you know, they eventually all get back. Beck Weathers lost his left hand mm-hmm. from the elbow down. Oh, All of the fingers on his right hand lost his nose and had had mm-hmm. major facial reconstruction. Yeah. But this guy spent two nights in a fucking storm. Yeah. And he says, he's like... I lost consciousness for 12 hours. So he doesn't remember anybody trying mm-hmm. to help. He's like, I lost consciousness. He's like, and then I woke up and I see Yosuku dead. And he thought, I can't get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and he's like, I just stood up and got out of there. He's like, I don't know. I don't know why, but I just got out of there. Yeah. So that is the ill-fated story 
of Mount Everest. I'm just looking up my notes, see if there's anything I forgot to tell you. Well, they must have gone off because if they were still hooked on, they would have found them. Right. Right. And they did, but they could be under an avalanche. Who knows? But you'd have to go search Rainbow Valley and find out because they all get blown into the same spot off the mountain. Yeah. Um, And it just is like, at what cost? What was no. so important that you lost your life over and this? And that guy lost his hand, his nose, and his fingers yeah. and didn't even summit it. Right. Like right. he didn't even do it. Right. Yeah, no. no. I don't have that need. No. And, you know, the postman, like, he, I think Rob felt so bad that he was like, I'm going to get him to the top at all costs. And, you know, in the movie, it's portrayed that way that, like, I've come this far. You got to let me go. You got me go. And against, he broke his own cardinal rule yeah. of turn around at two o'clock. Right. And he's two hours behind and it cost them both their lives. Yeah. And other people. Uh, the Russian is not portrayed very well as either, even though he did save seven people. He's portrayed as like very much out for himself. Yeah, he but he saved people. He did, but why was he in camp before his... He was a guide. Yeah. So he shouldn't have been in camp before his clients were in camp. Mm -hmm. So that was very controversial. He took a lot of hits. He went on to some of the 14 peaks or the seven peaks. And it just... um He took a big hit in the story. Krakauer got a lot of criticism for writing the story, for um, putting putting a blame game. I think it was his way of trying to justify what he saw mm -hmm. and what he went through. Yeah. Never been the same. None of these people, Sandy Pittman won't even give an interview. She won't be, nobody will talk to her. Um, like I said, she takes a big hit in the book. Yeah. So if you get the chance, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. It's, nope. Nope, 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 nope. I'm freezing sitting in my house right now. Right, yeah. Right, no. Um, and I think, of what a spoiled little brat I am. Like, I'm going to go home, I heat a mattress pad, and I'm going to warm up, and I'm going to have my cats, and I'm going to have my, like, I, I would never. No, I'm uncomfortable in my I house would never. Moment, I have yeah. no idea. No, I don't need to sleep in the cold. No, nope. Where do you shit when it's negative 70 degrees Maybe out? you don't. Do you think I'm ever going to poop Maybe when it's don't. 70? You wouldn't. Like, I think your body probably doesn't. It's just reusing it. Yeah. Or it's frozen I mean? like solid this, in the chute. Yeah. I, how are you going to even pee? It's too fucking cold to pull your pants down. Yeah. And as a woman, it's not like I can just pull the tip out. I mean, right. I got to squat. Right. No. 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 The food they're eating, you know, they're eating all that protein sludge shit that those hikers have that they have the little packets of. The fact that the tent is secured to a rock wall is enough mm -hmm. to make me So you don't right. blow off the side of the mountain. Yeah. I don't care. I've no. seen those tents. I'm like, what's wrong with you? You're an insane person. You could still blow off the side of that fucking mm -hmm. mountain. Mm -hmm. A tent isn't holding you on. Nothing about that no. is a good time for me. Nothing. No. I'll just watch it at the IMAX theater. Thank I, you very I much. I barely even want to do that. I don't mind. I'm warm in the IMAX theater. It makes me a little seasick because I, I get motion sickness. No, I mean, just watching them. Kind of like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. 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 And all that gear. I'm, no. no I'm good. Okay. So. It sounds awful. That should bring us through. January and February. Mm -hmm. um, enjoy. Hope you uh, enjoyed Everest and the Andes. Hope we warm up soon. Yes. I think we got a ways to go though, love. Mm. Um, so we are preparing some episodes on nursing, like eating their young and burnout, etc. So please, if you have stories of mentors that were good or bad mm -hmm. or um, stories of being bullied Mm -hmm. stories of burnout yeah. you know you're two years in the field and already you're done yeah please send them in because we'd like to incorporate them we're going to interview some people and mm -hmm. uh we'll take all the stories you got yeah all right guys all right, keep, keep warm. warm. <laughs> Bye. like subscribe rate and review the scissors and scrubs 
podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scissors and Scrubs. And email us any of your stories or thoughts to scissorsandscrubs at gmail.com.